Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the Filmmakers Collaborative Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. Joining me on this episode is Molly Beck, the founder and CEO of Messy FM. Messy FM's business software empowers organizations to create podcasts in minutes. Leaders and teams from top enterprise, government, and university sectors, plus thousands of small business owners and entrepreneurs, trust Messy FM to power their podcasting content. Molly was recently profiled by Forbes magazine, and after reading the interview, I reached out to her to ask if she'd like to share her thoughts with me on the current podcasting landscape and what she sees in podcasting's immediate future. Molly is also the author of Reach Out, She's a member of the National Small Business Association's Leadership Council, and she's a 2022 Tory Birch Fellow. And as an added bonus for this episode, we check in with friend of the podcast and friend of Filmmakers Collaborative, Roberto Mighty. Season two of Roberto's public television series, World's Greatest Cemeteries, premieres on February 19th. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives in every step of their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, as always, please share and follow. And now on to my conversation with Molly Beck. Hello, Molly Beck. Welcome to Making Media Now. Hi, Michael. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me on your podcast. It's my pleasure. So you came onto my radar via an interview I saw about a month ago at uh, in Forbes. And given that this is a podcast and ostensibly I'm a podcaster. I'm always interested in someone who can uh, sort of give their take on the lay of the land around podcasting. But then the further I, I read the article and then learn more about you, uh, you really bring to the fore this uh, interesting distinction, I think, between what most of, let's just say, the lay audience think of when they hear the word podcast versus a use of podcasts and sort of a dissemination of podcasts that's really taken hold over the past few years uh, in what you call private enterprise podcasting. Before we get into the particulars around that, Introduce yourself a bit. I know that you are currently CEO of Messy.fm. And as someone who has been involved uh, with numerous branding exercises for all different sorts of clients, I get to give you a kudos for that name right off. That's a brazen <laughs> name and I applaud it. <laughs> you know, I love naming things. The name Messy came from, I really believe that, you know, we'll get into it, but I believe that workforce and employee and internal communications employees can sniff out when something is overly formal, overly um, inauthentic, and employees want the real, the interesting, the messy. And so we talk <laughs> about when you're creating podcasts to reach workforces, it's not about never saying um or never having a dog yip once in the background. Employees actually want that when they're listening to communication that's not customer focused, not competitor focused, just internal. Yeah, that's so, that's so true, from. because I think that people, even on a maybe a subconscious level, you're, we become so attuned to know when, oh, God, that's PR speak, that's HR speak, that's someone they're trying to say this, but they know they think they have to say that. A hundred percent. And, you know, 
everyone's been in corporate and rolled their eyes at someone that, you know, on the Zoom meeting is just talking like they're the most formal person in the world. And it's like, it's okay. We can just be ourselves. Like this is what the same way that when you listen to a podcast and you feel like you're friends with the podcaster because they're joking, they have inside jokes, you're laughing along. That's what employees want when they listen to podcasts, even if they're from someone that's inside of the organization that, you know, not every middle manager or executive has the type of personality that would do amazing on a publicly available podcast, but these people are celebrities inside of their organization. You know, you, you know, at your organization, who are the superstars, who's the person that's added to an email that everyone sort of sits up straighter when they get the email, give those people the ability to talk to their fellow colleagues, employees, people that are a couple levels down in the type of communication that everybody wants, which is podcasts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I want to get into the sort of the differentiators around enterprise uh, podcasting. But before we do that, uh, talk a little bit about your background and what brought you to the point that you that you're at now. I was I was taking a look at your um, LinkedIn profile and it's uh, super impressive. So uh, walk us through the highlights. Well, I feel like like most of your listeners, I'm a creator at heart and I love creating things. Sometimes those things are one-off TikTok accounts. Sometimes they're email lists. Sometimes they're blogs. Sometimes they're podcasts. Sometimes they're entire businesses. And uh, the, the ethos of being a creator is very important to me. So you know, in about 2009, I was working at Goldman Sachs as an intern, was very excited for what I thought would be this amazing career in finance, which was my major. And um, the markets crashed and Goldman canceled their analyst class. And I was really scrambling. And I started a blog called Smart, Pretty and Awkward, three pieces of advice every day, how to be smarter, how to be prettier, how to be less awkward. And this is when new media was just starting to happen and really leaned into the blog creating content did, did around blogging it. feel natural to you did writing feel intuitive and natural to you yeah i'd worked at um previously i'd actually spent my summers working at home depot and i had done a collection of short stories around working at home depot <laughs> and so um writing was like a medium i was somewhat That's familiar awesome. with but you know that was it's so crazy to talk about now but you know back then like the idea of writing on the web was like you know i would be constantly explaining to people well, I don't really know who's list. I don't really know who's reading, but like I can see my analytics and, you know, the thorough line of my career is that I am so grateful for Blogspot and eventually WordPress for existing because they let me be a creator without worrying about the back end. Exactly. So fast forwarding a bit, I continue writing. I end up working at a bunch of uh, media companies creating more content for social. Some of them would be like book of the month club, Hearst, Venmo, just creating content, um, talking to different audiences. And then in 2015, I started working at Forbes, went to Forbes to do some writing for them. Um, cause the whole time this was happening, smart Awkward was growing and actually got really excited about podcasts and pitched the idea to my boss at Forbes to um, have me create podcasts for Forbes and to run a podcast network. Spent a couple of years doing that, um, helping not only I, I hosted a podcast, but then we also had a network of creators that did podcasts. And I started thinking about the beginning of my career and how grateful I was for software that let me be a creator. And I started to see podcasting in some ways replacing blogging, but started to ask, like, where's the WordPress for podcasts? Where's the way to make it super easy for anyone to jump into this new space? And that's when I left to start Messy FM. 
you know, a one-stop shop where someone could record at it and publish podcasts and raise some investment money. I ended up going to Techstars. And one of the investors in Messi is Comcast. And Comcast was really excited about our software and wanted to use it internally. At the time, we were mostly powering quite a lot of publicly available shows. And so mm-hmm. I was like, oh, you know, we, we do publicly available shows. I guess if you want to do it for your workforce, we could build some features for you. You are an investor after all. So we built a couple of one-off features for them. And then COVID happened. This is 2020. And started to think, okay, all of these companies are going to need to find a way to reach employees that previously were in the office. And so we built more features for enterprises to create podcasts for their employees all privately available employees access them by sending in their work email and password. And that's really been the market we focused on for the last three years, making it easy for internal communications managers, executives, anyone inside of the organization to create podcasts, to talk to their fellow colleagues in a way that is human and interesting and is in the medium that employees actually want. So going back to your um, initial exposure to podcasts as a listener, what was it about the medium that that uh, hooked you? What was it about the listening experience that that you found um, impressive? You know, that is such a wonderful question. What is it about the experience? You know, I, I because I create content, I also love enjoying content other people created. So mm-hmm. read a ton of blogs, uh, even was on like a bunch of newsletter lists, like in 2015, like pre-substack, that wasn't even that common. And when some of my favorite podcasters, some of my favorite people to follow online started creating content, I just love this chance to go deeper with them, to hear their voice, to hear right. them laugh. I think, a, I think a great podcaster has inside jokes with their audience And, um, I also think not everybody's a reader. I'm a big reader. Um, something we didn't talk about in my bio was that eventually my blog led to representation. And then I got, uh, I wrote a book with McGraw Hill. So I also love to write. It's called reach out. It is based on actually an article I wrote that went viral. The idea of the article is that sending one email every day to someone on the edge of your network can change your professional life. Actually, just this is such a side note about the book, but the book came out in 2017. It did fine. There was nothing wrong with it. It um, uses a textbook in a lot of universities. So every fall and spring, I typically go and talk to university classes. But then in 2020, when COVID happened, um, people that had read the book, not even me, I wasn't even on TikTok at this time, started putting it on TikTok and like talking about their learnings from this book in this hybrid environment. The book ended up going to number one on Amazon in its category because of TikTok. So it's just like the power of people that are creating this awesome content online. So anyways, I love working with creators. And now my job, my, at my CFM, we create software that lets creators not have to worry or feel stressed about pulling from different resources internally or finding a podcast producer or knowing what platforms to use. They can just come to Messy. It's self-service end-to-end and create highly polished audio. We don't think that someone that's an internal communications manager should have to become an NPR level podcast producer to be able to talk to their employees in this new medium of audio. And that's what Messy FM is. Take that burden off of them. And Messy FM is taking that burden off of them because you've created software uh, yeah. that is going to enable them to to do that. 
hundred percent. Yep. It's a software company. We do do some creator trainings, but for the most part, people are coming to our site and using our software without really ever talking to anyone from our team. Right. Okay. And so it would be analogous to, as you were saying earlier, back in the the heyday or the advent of blogging, what the WordPress of the world was doing. It was, you know, eliminating essentially those barriers to entry. A hundred percent. That's exactly what it's doing. I really admire those companies. And I, I do think if someone is interested in, there's always a value in being a creator around sharing your voice, whether that's written or via podcast. But I also think creating software that really solves a problem is a fantastic way to scale your ideas to reach many different people. And I often think creators, people that listen to this podcast, actually have some wonderful ideas around software that can make their lives easier and better. And creative people are creative people. So if you're thinking, oh, I could never invent software, or I could never invented technology product, I would really encourage you to think again. So let's get into the different the difference between um, I think as I said, what the general audience may think of when they hear podcast, which it feels to me like podcasts these days are while there's there's numerous sort of categories of podcasts that kind of break out by topic type. Uh, in terms of genre, there's the one or two people that are even or are sort of riffing with each other or a guest and they essentially are the brand and and the podcast is an extension of their brand right um you know we think of people like joe rogan we think of brene brown we think of um you know sam harris you know people who sort of check all those boxes right and then there's the other type of podcast that I'm seeing more and more of that almost feel like audio documentaries. They're telling a highly produced um, story over multiple episodes. Um, when you take all of those sort of factors, how do you translate the potential f- for presenting those at the enterprise level? This is such a great question. So I I do think that there are three sort of formats that work really well for podcasts. And this is publicly or privately available mm-hmm. so that to level set publicly available show would be like this one. It's available on Apple podcasts, all of your podcast players and the audience is people that find it. They're interested in the topic. They're interested in hosts. They're interested in the sponsor and they want to learn more about this topic. So that's a publicly available show. A private show is one that's only available for a limited audience. A popular type of private shows would be someone that has a large audience for their publicly available show and they create a subscriber only feed. People usually pay to access it. It goes deeper. Messy FM creates podcasts that sit under the private label, but we call them internal and they're just for workforces. Typically, most of our customers are large companies that um, they only want their employees to hear the podcasts. And for internal podcasts, the way that employees typically listen to them is they're logging in with their work email and password, and they're seeing the episodes that the internal creator has deemed relevant to them. So typically we don't work with a company that's starting one internal podcast. They're starting many or several, Mm -hmm. and then each of the podcasts is going out to a different audience. So you and I both work at GE. We both, when we log in, see the three company-wide podcasts, and then we see the three or the four podcasts specific to our team, our department, our location, our length of service. It's like a personalized podcast experience for the employees. Um, And within that, the different formats for internal podcasts, just like you're talking about, we typically see it's host-driven, interview-driven, and 
content driven. So host driven would be some sort of subject matter expert, a C-suite executive, a team leader, a CEO doing some sort of podcast that's maybe an ongoing Ask Me Anything series, pulling back the curtain for the behind the scenes of a product launch, um, a new hire, maybe getting interviewed in like a getting to know me series for their team. A popular one would be a CEO doing like a welcome to our company show for new hires or interns. So those all fall under host driven. The host is really the draw to that content. Then we have interview driven, bringing on guests, highlighting them to a wider audience. Um, a, a really fun version of an interview driven show is when HR members invite team members on in like a employee of the month type format. They get nominated by their boss or by their team for doing great work. They get some employee recognition by being on the internal podcast, but it's a, it's a very inexpensive way to make employees feel super valued. And because the podcast is just internal, it doesn't have to go through PR or brand approval the way something public might. Um, that's interview driven and then content driven, exactly what we were talking about, like a journalistic deep dive. Usually the two teams inside a company that are doing content driven would be like a research team mm -hmm. doing a deep dive on a specific aspect of the marketplace, like competitor research over an entire series, uh, an entire season of the podcast or a DEI team really like having some impactful cultural conversations around organizational intersections that is typically highly content driven. So those are the three formats we see host interview and content driven. So as the CEO of Nessie FM, have, have you uh, uh, gleaned any thoughts uh, into whether or not the uh, enterprise um, private enterprise podcasting, does it work better with one type of an organization than another? You know, we've seen Organizations are very small, 100 employees. And we've seen organizations that have 200,000 employees. Mm. I would say typically I when we recommend that an organization has somebody internally that's tasked with internal comms. If your company is too small to have someone that is like actively managing, whether that's an employee Slack channel or an employee newsletter, or an employee blog, perhaps a podcast isn't the best fit for you. But if you're large enough to have someone who's tasked with overseeing internal comms, you're ready for a podcast. And when we think about creating content and audio, I think oftentimes people are like, oh my gosh, we could never start a podcast. Think of all the extra work. I really see audio as an extension of what you're already doing in internal mm -hmm. comms. So maybe the newsletter goes out for employees. You pull snippets of those quotes and share them in the all hands chat. And then maybe you uh, highlight them in the all hands meeting. And then you take that video content and turn it into, you know, edit it down a bit and turn it into a podcast. So the podcast should be part of the flywheel for creating internal content. We don't think it should take someone more than 15 minutes hmm. post-production to get that podcast out the door. And so hopefully it's not taking over someone's entire life to create a new podcast to reach employees. It should be part of the media ecosystem inside these companies. Yeah. And that actually brings up the next question I was going to ask. Do you see these podcasts as replacing uh, an established communication channel internally or augmenting? Good question. I think it's augmenting. I think we could get to a place, but we're not there yet, where um, more text-based communication is sunsetted a bit inside mm -hmm. a company, but I don't think it would be because an internal podcast existed. It would just be 
you know, if you are working at a company with 150,000 employees and you're tasked with reaching them, you're running a media organization and you have an audience that you need to reach. So you need to be talking to your end customers, which is your fellow employees and saying, what content do you like? Are you watching videos online? Are you reading text-based communication? Do you like to be active in chat? Are you listening to podcasts? You know, we know that people listen to podcasts during the workday. Research from Spotify bears that out. So if your customers are already listening to podcasts during the day, then you better be creating content and audio to reach them. Because if they're not listening to the company internal podcast and they're listening to the latest true crime. So you need to be reaching your audience where they are. I would imagine that organizations that uh, uh, get into the uh, enterprise private podcasting um, after a while, they also create sort of an archive that they can go back to say you had mentioned, um, you know, imagine a scenario where it's the HR department. And I mean, the HR department could literally have its own channel when you think of all HR related topics and okay. So you're a new hire. There are these half dozen podcast episodes that you, once you listen to these, you're going to get a much better sense of what it means to work here. Um, Do you find that when clients, customers are kind of planning their media calendar, uh, are they, are they trying to like uh, bunch up, um, content so that they can slice it up then and distribute it. So it's, it's less of a time suck for someone to think about, Oh yeah, I got to do the podcast this week. Um, or is it more, uh, spontaneous, uh, say more event driven? I think it is event driven. I don't, I don't think that if you're reaching a lot of employees very much that you do a spontaneous, (laughs) I, you know, I think you're pretty, you're pretty planned and, you know, to lean on your point here, you know, there, there will always be places inside of organization for text-based urgent content. Mm-hmm. Where's the link for the Zoom meeting today? What's happening with this account? Please tell me, please tell me right now what is happening this week with this sprint. But there's also a place for more evergreen content and thinking about internal internal priorities, internal values, and creating content around around topics that work really well now, but someone joins the team in six months, or you want to go back and re-listen to something in another in another season of life, the content is still valuable. And that's mm-hmm. where I see podcasts fitting in an interview with your CEO talking about how they ended up there and the internal values that they hold dear is relevant today. And it's relevant in three weeks from now in the way an employee newsletter is not always relevant three weeks later. I also think something that is important to talk about is internal communications typically have been communications that people needed their eyes to engage with, whether that's reading an email, watching a video with graphics, um, like uh, being active in Microsoft Teams or Slack. And we work with lots of customers that their workforces are deskless and they don't have their eyes to engage with internal content. Oregon is a wonderful customer of ours. They have many employees that are out in the field driving all day. And if they only create content for people that can read it, they're missing this whole workforce that has tons of windshield time, wants to engage with company content, and they're just not creating it for them. So the democratization of internal comms and thinking about how can we create content for every single employee, whether they're sitting behind a desk or they're on their feet all day, whether they're in a hospital or a factory or in their car, all of your employees should be able to engage with internal content. And I I do think as a 
creator inside of an organization, you have a responsibility to make sure that you're creating in formats that your employees can actually engage with during work time. Yeah, that's such an excellent point because, you know, uh, I'm no, uh, I'm sure this phrase is uh, going to be quite familiar to you when you hear about companies wanting to uh, maintain and kind of propagate a particular cultural, cultural fit, right? A, a, a cultural feeling. And when you have a dispersed workforce, that's much tougher to do. And, and frankly, if it's just through the written word, we never have any control over someone, how someone receives a piece of writing, right? We know what our intent is. We know what the tone we hope is. And yet there are so many variables that come into play when somebody's reading that. What else are they doing that day? What's the, you know, what's their stress level that day? But when you personalize in a way, you know, the human voice has amazing capacity, particularly in podcasts, to feel quite intimate, even when there are thousands of people who are going to be listening to that. And in, in that all of that tone. I think has the opera has the potential for making, you know, an employee that maybe goes into the office once a month feel like, oh, yeah, this is a unified voice. We are a unified team. You know, I'm thinking of the Seinfeld episode where it's like these pretzels are making me thirsty. <laughs> you know, depending on the word you emphasize, the meeting is completely different. And that is lost. In well, it's thirsty, of course. That's a no brainer. <laughs> and I think it's these these pretzels. <laughs> you know, I, I think the human voice is that meeting that is intimate and fun and funny. And, you know, to go back to that question of why was I initially interested in podcasts? I also wanted to connect with my audience deeper. You know, the people that were reading my blog for many years had never heard my voice. They'd, and anything that someone is texting or like writing in text, everybody rereads it a couple of times, takes out words, adds in commas, where it's, it's hard to do that in podcasts. So you really are, hearing someone's actual voice and how they speak. And that's fun. Yeah. If you work at a company with tons of employees, even if tons of employees is just a hundred, you're not going to have FaceTime with somebody a couple of levels up on any regular basis. And it's really fun to be able to run into someone in the hall and have them not only, you know, them, but potentially if you're the podcast host, they know you, if you want job security, you should be hosting an internal podcast. (laughs) It is really hard to lay off the person. That's that workforce (laughs) influencer that has the, that's an excellent point. Yes. At the very least for the self-interested in the world out there, get to be a podcast producer. (laughs) A hundred percent. You're, you know, if you're someone at a company, like let's say you work in accounting, but you have a podcast on the side or you listen to lots of podcasts, you're probably not on the team that you would be able to raise your hand and say, Hey, I want to do a podcast publicly available. You're not on that team, but if you have a fun personality and you like to talk about, Hey, I work in accounting. And actually what we do here is so important to every other department. And I want to have a podcast where I interview one person from every department and talk about how their role intersects with what we do here in accounting. Not only is that a fantastic opportunity for you to highlight the work that your team does, but it's a fantastic opportunity for you to have 45 minute conversations with tons of internal stakeholders. You probably wouldn't have a chance to otherwise. 
Yeah. You know, as, as I, I was looking at some statistics around podcasting and as I'm sure, you know, there's like an avalanche of statistics that sort of just blur into one. But this was coming out of 22. There were over 420 million podcasts available. And these when uh, I'm assuming these are publicly facing podcasts and 420 million podcast listeners, over 4 million podcasts. As we are now uh, well into 2023, uh, not to put you on the spot here, but I'm going to put you on the spot. What do you uh, what do you see as trends over the next 12, 18 months in the in the field? You know, something that I think is a benefit of of starting a podcast is that the analytics are private Hmm. and it's not like starting a social media account where people can see how many followers you have. Okay. This account has 30 follows, like not that interested. (laughs) You have 30 listeners on your podcast. Nobody can tell you differently. Like there's no comm score for podcasts or at least not one that's widely used. And so I do think that that privacy gives you the ability to, um, take your podcast seriously, even if your listeners are still growing. The flip side of that is that it can be hard to put time and effort into a publicly available show and see your numbers pretty flat. And one of the reasons I think mentally it's helpful for creators to create a podcast for a private audience is that you know that there's a limit to the number of listens your podcast can ever get. It's only available for this audience. Mm-hmm. So instead of feeling like everyone in the world, there's 9 million, 9 billion people and I can only get a hundred listens. This is so demoralizing versus, Hey, a hundred of my fellow employees are engaging with this content. And they're also more likely to know you, you, you hop on a chat and they're chatting with you. I think you just get more feedback when you have a smaller audience it's going back to. Mm-hmm. And I, so when I think about the trends for this year, I do think private podcasts will continue to grow if only because it can be demoralizing for publicly available creators. Pod fade is very real. This idea that most people fade out of their publicly available shows before Absolutely. they hit yep. 10 episodes. The other thing is if you've told your boss that you're going to do the internal podcast, you have this sort of obligation <laughs> to keep at it for a bit. And as every creator knows, the first time you do anything, it's not your best work. So having some accountability that you've built in by telling people that you're going to be working on this podcast is a nice way for you to get better at your craft. Have you noticed any uh, uh, usage of the internal private podcasts among, say, large nonprofits? Um, I, you know, as you were speaking, I was thinking about, you know, uh, large nonprofits in particular and smaller ones, but, you know, larger ones also, a lot of them, their missions are so far far reaching and far ranging their their donors or contributors or underwriters uh uh fall into the same category and yet the opportunity uh to sort of customize either appeals or updates or or just statements of appreciation um or, or and interviews would say people in the field you know uh i'm i'm just i'm wondering if you have any experience in that or know of any use of that i think that's That is such a great call out because I do think nonprofits, typically their workforces are super social mission minded. They're really Mm -hmm. interested in the work that they do. And nonprofits are do, you know, by definition are doing good in the world. So being able to bring people that they've impacted and have them share their story for employees, not everyone at a nonprofit is interacting directly with the people that they're 
helping. And right. so being able to bring stakeholders on and say, hey, even if you're in a department where you're not getting face to face with the population that we're reaching, you can hear the work that you're doing. I'm thinking we work with a large hospital chain that it's not I don't I don't know what their tax structure is, but I think it's similar to a nonprofit in that they're touching lots of different people again and again. And their advancement group does a podcast where they talk about the people that they've helped. And a benefit is that they have tons of video that they created a couple of years ago of people that they have helped and being able to easily turn that video Messy FM, you can upload any video file and we'll turn it into a podcast for you, taking that easily into podcasts. So when their employees are walking the dog, making dinner, just like sort of vegging out while they're doing some mindless office work, they can be reminded of the people they're helping. I think it's a fantastic use case. Mm, absolutely. And do you know of any instances where the, uh, the, the your client, your customers are actually opening up the listener audience beyond their employees, say, for instance, back into the, you know, the nonprofit sector, if you are a supporter of the organization, or I was also thinking, you know, in the for-profit sector, you know, maybe um, the internal podcast is used uh, to help with a, um, a sales initiative. So you're a prospect mm -hmm. and here, listen to this interview with our our you know head technology director and and you can you, you know you can hear about the the uh, intricacies of this product that we would never be able to communicate in a pamphlet or or online necessarily. That is such a great question. I'm, I think salespeople are the best people to host a podcast because they're super personable. Most of the sales force, if they're doing outside sales, is in the car all day long. Right. So a daily podcast from the sales manager, hey, here's what we're focusing on. I do think once you start letting customers listen to the content, some of the, um, it does need to be more highly polished than maybe an internal podcast. So Yes, with Messy FM, you can turn any episode uh, or any show, public or private, just like by hitting a button. You also can get a custom link. So if you wanted to just share it, yes, I think that that is a way to share benefits. But I also think once your audience uh, changes from people that already work at the company right. to more of a sales, you do have to be, it's going to need to go through some sales approval, maybe some PR approval. It, it's going to need to make sure it's highlighting these benefits. Are you, are you choosing a customer to feature that is the demographic you're trying to go after? There's just more considerations when it's not internal only, but I, I work, we work with a lot of sales teams. I love working with people that work on sales teams. I feel like they're so fun. They're funny. They have lots to say. They want to talk to their team. Honestly, most of the sales teams you work with do a daily podcast. That's like, here's what we're focusing on today or like a pep up in the morning. And um, they can be really fantastic users of internal pods. <laughs> what kind of a podcast listener are you? And how does your sort of uh, more general media diet influence the type of podcasts that you're drawn to? Oh, yes. That's a good question. Um, you know, unsurprisingly, I love listening to podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a lot of my day is spent helping. I actually listen to a lot of unfinished audio because for customers that have bought in the creator training package, I often will listen to the first couple of their episodes, give them some interview pointers or here's how we can do it differently next time. So I, I listen to a lot of audio files every day. Um, 
However, on the polished audio side or the finished audio side, I really love podcasts where the I feel like I'm listening in on a conversation between two friends. Mm-hmm. So the two podcasts that I listen to most often would be Best of Both Worlds. There are two working moms that chat about balancing career and um, having kids. And okay. it's honestly usually the two of them chatting. And I feel like I'm just listening in and they're my friends too. And then I also listen to the toast, which is two sisters. That's a daily podcast, which is awesome if you're looking for lots of content. And I, I, again, I like having the same people. I I tend to gravitate towards host driven podcasts over interview driven. Cause I like to hear the same people again and again. And, um, I also like this podcast called you're not getting any younger where the host just brings on guests that are doing like interesting sort of zany things and chats with them. Um, Oh, I also love the podcast. One bold move a day. Um, Her show is about like one thing you can do today that would help move your career forward. I really enjoy it. I would say I focus on like more career or like uh, host driven shows. And do you, uh, do you, subscribe to any podcast in other words do you are are you a subscriber to to any podcast wherein the content you're listening to is exclusive to subscribers yes i i really believe in supporting mm-hmm. creators online and i do pay i pay for one podcast that i love is called one smart thing i pay for her newsletter i pay for um the patreon of the toast and best of both worlds subscribe to all the uh, newsletters that the host does of you're not getting any younger. I really do believe if you love a show, I think you have a responsibility if your budget allows to support the creator. If there was ever a time where I couldn't financially like, uh, support the creator by subscribing to their private feeds, then I would just be sure to be liking and commenting on all of their Mm -hmm. sponsored content. Of course, giving them reviews. How can you love someone's content and not support them as a creator? I think of that sort of an obligation of the web. Absolutely. And I think you make an important um, point also that there are going to be instances where certain people aren't going to be able to support financially, maybe even for just a brief period of time. But that support through word of mouth, that support through just helping them get their numbers up and get, you know, uh, yeah. get the word out there uh, is also hugely beneficial. Uh, Mom, Every time you see one. Oh, sorry. Sorry, I was going to say one thing. Anytime you see a sponsor post, one of your creators does on social, like that sponsor post, write a comment. Hey, I think I got to try this. Thanks for this. That can mean so much to a creator. And I think that is important. It makes a big difference. Well, Molly Beck, thank you so much for the time. Molly Beck is the CEO of Messy FM. So if folks want to learn more about what Messy FM does and how they do it, where should they be going? Yeah, absolutely. You can go to www.messy.fm. That's our website. Lots of info on there. You can always reach out to me um, since I wrote a book on email. I am always sharing my email, molly, M-O-L-L-Y at messy.fm. You can also find me. I'm on all the different social platforms, Miss Molly Beck. And I also review fast food on TikTok. So follow me anywhere. That's that's awesome. Totally. Today's is Pizza Hut. So stay tuned for that review. Get at it. All right. Well, it's it's, uh, it's still morning. So I don't know what time the pizza consumption starts, but (laughs) enjoy that. (laughs) This has been really fun. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Michael. And now on to my conversation with Roberto Mighty to talk about what's in store for season two of World's Greatest Cemeteries. Hello, Roberto Mighty. Welcome back to Making Media Now. Great to see you. 
You too, Michael. I love your show. Really love it. Well, we we, we love chatting with you. And uh, you have um, the distinction of being our first three-time guest. We got to speak with you way back at the beginning. And then last, I want to say late winter, early spring, we talked about uh, World's Greatest Cemetery Season 1. Mm-hmm. And today we are here to talk about World's Greatest Cemetery Season 2, which will be launching out to the world on February the 19th, which is just a few days away. So congratulations on that. Uh, so first off, t- I, I, I want to find out what did you learn from Season 1? in terms of execution of putting world's greatest cemeteries together that you're carrying over to season two. And also what, if any type of viewer response to season one helped inform uh, what you covered and how you covered it in season two. Well, thanks for asking. Well, what I learned uh, probably the most was to really um, trust the storytelling instincts, you know, (laughs) and um, you know, you go into these, historic cemeteries anywhere in the world. And they typically have not hundreds, not thousands, but tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people interred in them. And the question is, okay, which, you know, four or five people are we going to pick in a half hour episode to focus on as well as they'll have thousands of monuments. So which two or three, maybe four of these incredible, you know, outdoor sculptures are we going to take a closer look at? And so forth. And then also uh, in each episode, we also will do a remote where we'll go to that cemetery, let's say, you know, in London. Mm-hmm. And then we'll go from the cemetery to where the person we're talking about grew up. Like, in fact, I know you have a very literate audience. So, for instance, um, you know, the famous writer Marianne Evans, better known as George Eliot, right? Okay, um, yes. Silas Marner, you know, so while we're, you know, for the London show, we look at her grave and her monument there. And then we also do a little excursion, you know, using video, you know, to um, to where she lived and all that. And then we sort of tie that into a story. So you see all that in a half hour. Right. And what do you pick for goodness sake? You know, so, so much. So just learning to um, trust, to really follow the story telling that yeah. was the biggest lesson yeah it's a great you, you mentioned it's a half an hour but what's what's in that half hour is the viewer comes away with a deeper appreciation for uh the life of this historical figure in in oftentimes in ways that you know get get well beyond just kind of the uh, wikipedia biographical entry exactly there's a real sense also of you know why that cemetery for that person what was the regional geographic connection and then of course you know if you were simply just a a lover of landscape architecture the cemeteries itself so your 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 show checks all of those all of those boxes uh give us a sense uh in terms of your uh, globe hopping whether internationally or even nationally where did your adventures take you on season two in season two um we start out in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, and I hope I said that right. Now they tried Louisville. To me, oh man, but I don't think that was really how they say it. Michael. I'm sure it isn't. I've been there, and I'm sure <laughs> I mispronounced it. <laughs> only because I you know, they told me a hundred times. I think it all uh, depends Louisville, on how much bourbon you've had if you're in Louisville. I, I think that might have something to do with it. <laughs> you know, they're super nice people, super hospitable, and there, you know, we this, you know, we meet. Um, I got to interview Muhammad Ali's widow. 
you know, Mrs. Muhammad Ali, Mrs. Yolanda Ali, at his incredibly beautiful memorial that she designed at Cave Hill Cemetery. Um, I'm just going to pick a few different ones. So that's in Louisville. Mm -hmm. Um, In Concord, Massachusetts, an area that you and I are very familiar with. uh, You know, there's the one cemetery that has Louisa May Alcott, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Yes. Henry David Thoreau and Nathaniel Hawthorne. <laughs> all the big brains. All, all the big brains, yeah, all in one place in a historic uh, cemetery. And an incredible um, gentleman who was an enslaved man who purchased his own freedom in the 18th century. Wow. Um, who was buried, actually, not, he's buried in a nearby place, but he's very well known in the town. So, again, you know, I try to weave all these stories in together mm-hmm. um, in that place. In, a, in the Bronx, New York, um, we get to meet, uh, oh my goodness, let's see, Duke Ellington, um, Herman Melville, wow. uh, Miles Davis, Madam C.J. Walker, an incredible African-American businesswoman, um, Jokichi Takamine, an incredible Japanese scientist. I mean, it's New York, baby, you know? Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> so you have these amazingly accomplished people all in one place. Um, let's see, so that's New York. Oh, New Orleans, how could I forget that? And I didn't pronounce that right either. So, um, <laughs> uh, but in New Orleans, um, Nolens. The story there is quite. Thank you. That's say it again, please. Nolens. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. I'm sure somebody so, uh, from Nolens right now is 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 poking is, at their ears, wondering what that horrible sound was. <laughs> what did that guy just say? <laughs> exactly. But um, at uh, in New Orleans, which is a. Um, New Orleans, it's a, a cemetery called St. Louis Cemetery Number no. One. Mm-hmm. Um, it happens to be a Catholic cemetery. And um, there uh, we meet Homer Plessy of, you know, Plessy versus Ferguson. That, yes. You know, one of the most influential Supreme Court decisions in our country's mm-hmm. history. Um, and then a very interesting, um, unique local figure named Madame Marie Laveau, who was a voodoo priestess. And when you say voodoo priestess, when you're in Nolens, you better say it with a straight face, and there's there's no joking about it. Right. You know that voodoo is a religion, just as Catholicism or Judaism or Protestantism, if you will, yeah, is religion. And so we kind of explore why that is. You know, like culturally speaking, what's going on there. Um, and uh, in uh, Cincinnati, um, we got a chance to visit the uh, an organization called the Jewish Cemeteries of Cincinnati, and uh, it's an amazing thing. They have like about 25 separate um, cemeteries that all banded together. Yeah. The first one was like 1824, right? <laughs> you know, and they all sort of banded together um, several years ago and formed an umbrella organization. And this encompasses burials that are Orthodox, uh, conservative and reform um, that are both Ashkenazi and Sephardic. And we explained all, what all these things mean. What type of viewer reaction response did you have from season one uh, that may have informed season two insofar as were viewers in any instances bringing to your attention great stories that existed in interesting cemeteries? Uh, That's great. I mean, that's exactly what happened, Michael. um, In fact, I love the letters that start out with, gee, I really like your show, but (laughs) (laughs) here comes a suggestion. That's right. And I love it. And um, let's see, Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx was one of those suggestions. Wow. Um, of course, St. Louis Cemetery, uh, number one in New Orleans, is known around the world. That was 
Uh, I mean, I think probably 25 or 30 people said you got to go to that place. So we went there, you know, so I love getting we get a lot of fan mail and I love getting recommendations from viewers. Yeah, absolutely. Talk about talk about a viewership that's really uh, bought into uh, and is resonating uh, with the theme of the show, that it matters that much to them that they're going to make a suggestion to you. Absolutely. And, you know, the people are um, very passionate about, you know, their local historic cemetery or sometimes it's just the cemetery where their parents are buried. Sure. You know? And that's right. that's fair game, you know. Absolutely. And um, no, I just I, I love it. And um, we get recommendations from, for instance, we've had recommendations from Ireland, Patagonia, Prague, you know, for cemeteries that are in those places right wow you know, places. yeah and and um so and so far we've been able to um you know establish relationships with a few of those places and um so yeah the show will be going there in into some of these other places in season three in season know, so. three already thinking about season three already <laughs> unbelievable um and from what I understand, there's there's actually more ways for viewers to catch your show this season than last season. Tell us a little bit about that. Right. That's a, that's right. So um, last this season, people will starting February 19th, people will be able to go on PBS.org mm-hmm. and for free for 60 days, they can binge watch all six season two brand new episodes of world's greatest cemeteries. Yep. And um, that, that's, you know, different from last year. And then after that, um, then they will be able to go on to PBS passport. You know, that's PBS's online service, kind of like the Netflix of PBS, Sure. you know, and um, they'll be able to see the shows. And um, by the way, that's a great deal. I think it's like, Oh, it's very, very inexpensive, maybe $5 a month. Mm-hmm. And you get Masterpiece Theater, All Creatures Great and Small, yeah. um, Finding Your Roots. You get all these wonderful shows. Plus, you get World's Greatest Cemeteries. Absolutely, sure. Dollar. Yeah. And just to, just so viewers are clear, uh, you can also see the show uh, uh, on, on the television. You, ju- you just don't have to stream it either on PBS.org uh, or through PBS Passport. That's exactly right. So people um, on our, on the website, worldsgreatestcemeteries.com, mm-hmm. there's a page called Stations, and um, people can just go there, and there's a little chart there, and then they can look up you know, their state, their city, and their local public television station, and they can see if it's playing in their town and what time it's playing there. Gotcha. And we have um this as of this week, there's 204 TV stations around the country who signed up to air World's Greatest Cemeteries. That's fantastic. <laughs> and I and uh I, I don't want to bore the listeners with the minutiae of how public television schedules their programming, but uh-huh. different than than other major networks. It's not like right. you go to, you know, at 9 p.m. on Tuesday, uh, every ABC affiliate is playing the same program. That is not the case with PBS. It's a bit of a free for all, particularly when you get into the weekends. So that's super helpful for you to point out the fact that viewers can go to um, uh, the show's website, worldsgreatestcemetery.com, and and find where in their area the show is going to be airing. And it's just fantastic to hear that more and more stations are deciding to carry it. Yeah, man, we are thrilled. And in fact, um, from season one, which began in October 2021, um, many stations are re- 
airing, you know, I mean, the show's in reruns, which is yeah. just, that's wonderful, you know, that they, clearly the audiences are really loving it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so there are many stations, uh, they'll be able to see, depending on what, you know, what time they live in, they will be able to see season two and season one, you know. That's great. And and before we started recording, you and I were just talking about how incredibly busy you are, but you did mention that you're already thinking about season three. And at this point, is it just sort of throwing, you know, th- throwing darts at a map and saying we haven't <laughs> been there? Well, you know, um, I started working on this project five years ago and, um, you know, specifically as a television project. Mm-hmm. And I made a list of like 25 cemeteries that I'd heard of, you know, as a cemetery lover. And um, then, you know, through the, through the, you know, the show fans, <laughs> you know, I mean, they've, gosh, I don't know, maybe 50 more, <laughs> you know, at least 50 more, you know, well, yeah. Well-known historic cemeteries. And we're, you know, we're doing six per season, so we can do this for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, but in answer to your question, um, there's a cemetery, there's a famous, among taphophiles, you know, people who like cemeteries, there's a famous... Is that, uh, what, place, they, is that what it's called? If you if you love cemeteries, you're a taphophile. Exactly. You know, like epitaph, right? You know? Or, oh, or, there you go. Okay, you know, sure. At the end. <laughs> yeah, well done. I see someone uh, study their Latin. Very good. <laughs> Very good. And um, yeah, so... The um, there's a famous cemetery in Paris called Père Lachaise, you know, Father Lachaise Cemetery. And we already have permission to go in there. Um, there are several others I don't want to name because I don't want to get in trouble. Okay. <laughs> but um, let's just suffice it to say that, um, you know, we're looking at every continent except for Antarctica. Okay. <laughs> and there are places in, you know, Africa, Asia, South Asia. Wow. Um, you know, Europe, South America, Central America. Um, and of course, several more here in North America, right? You know that um, that are on the list. Well, that I should is- say also the Pacific Islands, by the way. Also, yeah. Wow. Well, I, you know, I, I was beginning to feel bad for you because you're so overworked, but you're going to these really cool places, so <laughs> you know, it sort of lessens my sympathy. <laughs> I gotta say that um, the first season, and even the second season, um, you know, we just would sort of, um, you know, burst into a town and get everything done, you know, just get it done. And uh, one thing I've learned, Michael, is to not do that anymore. Like is to, you know, try to schedule in another day or two, Mm -hmm. you know, to just go around and soak up the culture. You know, I bet I'm like you, I can see you have great art in your house. I can see that here. The audience doesn't know it. And, uh, and, I like to go to museums. I like to go to cultural sites. Mm-hmm. I like mm-hmm. to go to places where, um, you know, all different kinds of people have trod, you know, and have had something um, significant to do with the building of that culture or, or that nation. Sure. And so um, you just, there's no time to do that when you're on a brutal filming schedule. So what we're going to try to do in season three, is spend a little bit more time, you know, sort of seeing the, we're experiencing, I'm bringing the audience along with us, by the way, you know, with cameras, yep. um, you know, experiencing s- something brilliant that you said earlier, which was, um, why is that cemetery there in that right. location? Yes. And why is that person buried there? Well, as you implied, there is a reason. Yep. And uh, really looking forward to doing quite a bit more of that. 
and eating yeah. a whole lot of good food, I might add. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, no doubt. Well, it's it is all sort of part of what be- comes to um, reflect sort of the cultural profile uh, of a place. You know, the food, the music, the art, the architecture, and these beautiful cemeteries that that you visit, which you know the. the the, the cemeteries are these are beautiful parks where people happen to be buried and where and where tribute is you know paid to them. And these yeah. these cemeteries are really just part and parcel of that cultural mix that that is um, indicative and unique to the areas that you're you're visiting. Uh, cut print. That was perfect. <laughs> okay. He said I can't add another thing to that. That's exactly right. So it's World's Greatest Cemetery season two debuts on February 19th on public television stations across the country. So go to worldsgreatestcemeteries.com to check out the airing schedule in your particular area. But regardless of when it airs for the next 60 days, you can see the entirety of season two on PBS.org. And if you happen to miss that, uh, you can uh, dole out a minimal amount of dollars uh, to get Get yourself access to PBS Passport. Roberto Mighty, as always, such a pleasure to speak with you. Congratulations on season two. Get a little rest before you dive into <laughs> season three. Well, thank you, Michael. You're terrific. And I, I love that you really understand, you know, what we're trying to do. And you understand the, the greater internationalist cultural context of all this. Thank you so much. 